0: So how should we think about the relationship between theology and philosophy? Well, this is a question we're gonna be tackling in this episode of Think for Christ. And to help us work through it, I am absolutely delighted to be joined today by my former professor and someone who I consider to be a leading voice in a, in this important conversation, Dr. Richard Howe. Richard, welcome to Think for Christ.
1: Listen, Anthony, thank you so much. It's such a privilege. I've been looking forward to this conversation not only because of what the topic is, but also being able to have this conversation with you. So uh, thanks for for thinking on me. Let me be a part of it.
0: Yeah, I am so excited for this. Could you just take a, a moment to introduce yourself to the Think for Christ community?
1: Yes. Well, uh, as you probably guessed from, his, uh, from Anthony's comments, I'm a professor at Southern Evangelical Seminary. My official academic title is uh, Professor of Philosophy and Apologetics there. I'm also provost, uh, function very often like an ambassador, I get to travel the world with my wife and we meet up with alum and current students and hopefully future students of the seminaries. We talk in conferences and churches and, and things around the uh, around the world. And the thing that, uh, I don't know if you knew this, Anthony, but the thing that meant the most to me is that the seminary gave me the chair, the Norman L. Geisler Chair of Christian Apologetics. So Norm Geisler was my mentor. Uh, he was a professor of mine when I was at Dallas Seminary way back in 19. 19- <coughs> and then uh, <laughs> he became. You know, more so influential in my life in apologetics and philosophy, and almost like a second father to me. And in those years ago, if somebody had told me, Well, someday you're going to be teaching alongside Norman Geisler, that they might as well have said, I, I think the Beatles want you to sit in for Ringo here if you'll do that for a little bit, you know. So, uh, it, it's just a great th- honor. So I, I, I have more fun than Christians should be allowed to have, basically.
0: <laughs> it is a great honor. Um, well, Richard, you've maintained both. In your written work as well as talks that you give that theology needs philosophy that philosophy is critical in some way to the task of theology now before yes. I, I have you but before i have you unpack this claim for us let's just start by defining some terms so what do you mean when you when you use the word theology and, and then what do you mean when you use the word philosophy
1: okay well historically there's uh, an overlap and i think there's still that overlap part of what we're going to try to explore tonight but i think by and large theology has been used of truths about god and the sources of the data that lead to the conclusions about god come from both general revelation as God has revealed himself in creation and then special revelation as God has revealed himself through his prophets and apostles and then uh, ultimately through the Lord Jesus so that body of data that has to do with God his will his nature and these kind of things collectively is referred to as theology coming from the Greek word theos which is translated god in the in the new testament philosophy is uh, I like Ed Miller. Uh, his book, uh, Questions That Matter, it was actually a textbook I used when I was a graduate student teaching undergrad philosophy classes. And he defined philosophy as thinking rationally and critically about the most important questions. And what he meant by rationally was as opposed to undo emotion. Uh, very often emotion attaches to things that we value so much that we explore both in theology and in philosophy. So the emotions aren't, Improper, But they don't want to take front and center and guide the conclusions. We believe it because of the sort of momentum ginned up by some emotional state. Rather, we want to think in terms of the categories of reason when we're trying to adjudicate true and false and good and evil and these kind of things. And then critically that word sometimes has sort of a negative connotation where you say, well, he's just a real critical person. And we almost mean like, well, he's just always dour and down on things and looking for the worst of everything. But what, what Miller means in his uh, use of the term is that we sub- subject things to critique as opposed to gullibility. In other words, as children, we might believe just about everything we hear, but as we grow up, we learn to think about things and be discriminating about what might be plausibly true or false. And so we want to bring those tools of reason and critique and such to various aspects of things we believe, not just theology, but we do this in the hard sciences. We do this in personal relationships. We do this in our personal health care. And so when, when we try to see how those two uh, interplay, that's when sometimes we start getting into some murky waters and people get upset, perhaps, as we'll explore this as we go along.
0: Okay, great. Thanks for that. So what I want to do here is just I just want to get out of your way here for the first part of this discussion and kind of concede the floor to you so you can go ahead and lay out the case that you make for how philosophy needs theology.
1: Yeah, so, you know, what I'll do when I speak on this, like in a formal presentation, I I start out with an illustration that I think is relatively uncontroversial now. But wasn't so a few centuries ago. So in the 17th century, we're all familiar to some degree or another, perhaps, with the story about Galileo. And what that story involved, among other things, was the fact that Galileo was championing a view of the solar system or the universe that went counter not only to the teachings of the church but also the teachings of the uh, astronomers in the universities. And that view was that by and large, the sun is the center of our solar system and the earth orbits the, the sun. Okay. Now the previous view going way back to Ptolemy, even further back to Aristotle was the fact that the earth was the center of the universe, or what we might now call the solar system, and it was the sun that went around the earth, and then it's rotating on its axis. But what's interesting about that debate between uh, Galileo and the church officials and the university professors was the fact that one particular cardinal, uh, Bellarmine was his name, had made an argument against Galileo's view that the sun was uh, not moving, and it was the earth moving. That was what was at stake. And Bellarmine said, well, look, Joshua chapter 10, that's when Joshua commanded the sun to stand still. And Bellarmine's argument was, uh, you can't command something to stand still if it's not moving. So obviously the Bible teaches the sun is moving and not the earth, not to mention other verses like the foundations of the earth shall not be shaken, and those kind of references. So Bellarmine's argument was very solidly biblical. But we now believe that that Bellarmine was wrong, the church was wrong, and Galileo was right. Now, here's the lesson to learn from that. What was the Basically, what was the discipline of study that more or less settled it in everyone's mind, even in the minds of the Christians, even though it might have taken a few centuries? We call that discipline astronomy, basically. I mean, it utilizes things like mathematics. So there's a lesson to be learned in that, okay, so what astronomy did in that instance is astronomy eventually helped us correct a misunderstanding of a verse of Scripture right? Because before everyone was convinced that Joshua 10 was saying the sun was moving and the earth was still. Now we think the earth is moving and the sun is still relative to each other. And it was a discipline outside of theology and the Bible, because in fact, it was the Bible that was the very thing that was in dispute. So I go, okay, so if astronomy as a discipline can serve in some instances to correct a misunderstanding of Scripture, might there be things that philosophy, whatever that goes on to look like in our conversation, might it be that philosophy might play some role to correct some misunderstandings we might have of Scripture? And I would encourage people not to immediately recoil at the prospect, at least in principle, because we already grant it in principle when we grant the argument of Galileo and say, yeah, yeah, the astronomers proved that Galileo was right, or, or, or Copernicus really was right in, in this in this row between them. And so just as a basic principle, might it be the case that there are some philosophical truths that help us understand certain t- teachings of the Bible, and perhaps in some instances even correct misunderstandings that we might have so i summarize it this way sometimes nature and reality if you will will correct our misunderstanding of scripture and then i would also argue though this is not the topic necessarily for tonight but maybe it'll come up that sometimes our understanding a proper understanding of scripture will correct our misunderstanding of nature like i would suggest that's the case with evolution for example that we know from revealed truth that evolution is not true that's a different topic, to be sure. But in other words, it works both ways. You've got the, the disciplines that can correct misunderstandings of Scripture, and you've got Scripture that can correct misunderstandings in various disciplines. So that's, what, that's what's lying before us in our, in our conversation tonight. Great. Um, so there's two ways we can go here. We can start with a historical
0: perspective. Why don't we do that? Um, historically speaking, for the first, I don't know, 17 centuries of Christianity... Um, philosophy and theology were very intimately tied, right? There there was an an alliance between uh, philosophy and theology. Um, The the saying was that philosophy was the handmaiden of theology. Mm. Can you speak to the value um, that the historic Christian church placed on the discipline uh, discipline of philosophy?
1: Yes, absolutely. You know, critics of philosophy and its role that it might play in Christian thinking uh, often tout this quote from Tertullian that says something to the effect that what is Athens to do with Jerusalem, and and the and the lesson that they want people to learn is oh well very early on the Christians repudiated philosophy in toto and it had no place in the Christian life in context that not that wasn't at all Tertullian's view, and it was basically not the view of very many of the church fathers, because they immediately encountered a lot of bad thinking from the ancient Greeks, and so very often the tool they appealed to to engage and refute heresies and and outright false philosophies was itself philosophical methods and tools and data. Uh, so the church fathers—now, I'm not suggesting that it, that makes it okay that the church fathers did X, Y, and Z, and so you should do X, Y, and Z. But it does, I think, uh, uh, mitigate the criticism that says somehow that philosophy's intrusion into Christian thinking is some kind of late development. You see a fairly steady stream of the interaction of philosophy and theology. In fact, I would I would suggest that even the distinctions that we make so clearly today— between philosophy and theology uh basically both of those were just studies they were both just sciences as other things were too in other words they were various aspects of reality that humans had the faculties of reason an experience to try to come to understand. So you would do that with the physical world, with plants, with the heavenly bodies, with uh, other people, whatever it is. You would do it with the metaphysical world where you start talking about categories of causality and and uh, continuity through time and change, act and potency as as Aristotle would call it. You do it also with theology, where we try to systematize truths about God and his relationship to his creation as he's revealed through his prophets. So any kind of deliberate attempt to understand and codify, not codify, but systematize these truths, uh, they they are all out there on the table, a philosophy among them. But what happened, I think... You know, when when the Protestant Reformation occurs, okay, in the early 16th century, there were a lot of things in Catholic thinking that Protestants walked away from or rejected, eventually rejected. Primarily, it was the, the authority of the teaching magisterium. They wanted to elevate to the apex the authority of the Bible and deny that there were infallible interpreters, but that people read and study the Bible on their own. Also, issues reg- regarding justification by faith. Uh, uh, and things like that. But there were a lot of things about Christianity that was Catholic, if you will, that Catholics believe, that wasn't repudiated by the Protestants. And, and like, for example, the two natures of Christ, the bodily resurrection, the second coming, the Trinity, these kinds of things were inherited by Protestants, knowing that the, those truths arose out of a conscientious assessment of right. the data. Even so scripture. many of the
0: creeds, even so many Absolutely. of the... Uh... That's exactly
1: right. That's exactly right. And so, well, another thing that wasn't repudiated by the Protestants, at least not across the board, were the utilization of philosophical categories and methods to do theology when it was necessary. It wasn't maybe always necessary, but very often it could be. So when we look back on it, I tell people sometimes, you know, it's as Protestant conservative Protestants, as I have tried to learn to use that expression when I'm outside the U S because the word evangelical is not as common in some other parts of the world, even other parts of the English speaking world as it is in the U S. So in South Africa, I use, I try to remember to use the term conservative Protestant. And that basically is what we would identify as an evangelical here in the U S high regard for the authority of scripture and the primacy of, of uh, evangelism uh, and stuff. But at any rate, well, when you when you uh, I try to I, 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 maybe I don't inform them, but a lot of people have already felt this when you bring up some of this philosophy, especially if you bring up the scholasticism of, say, a Thomas Aquinas, then very often you'll run into Protestants who break out in a rash, practically, yeah. because it sounds Catholic to them. Right. Well, the reason it sounds Catholic is just an accident of history, in a sense, namely, that Catholics didn't have the liberty to just walk away from scholastic philosophy because a lot of the elements of scholastic philosophy was codified in their uh, yeah. in, the, in the papal authority in the Fourth Lateran Council, for example, you have simplicity explicitly mm-hmm. uh, required if you're Catholic. Protestants didn't have these kind of quote unquote constraints, so Protestantism then was, I'm, I'm oversimplifying presumably, but. To make it easy for me to wrap my mind around it. Protestants, they were more susceptible, perhaps sooner than Catholics to other philosophical voices uh, that are subsequent to the uh, the Middle Ages. And so uh, that begins then to, I think, from my biased opinion, to fog the conversation. So Protestantism now is having is suffering the what I think are the cumulative deleterious effects of just bad philosophical thinking. And so, look, even if even if I was wrong about who the bad guys and good guys were, the very conversation about, well, is Quintus right or is SCOTUS right about this, that very conversation is philosophical. So even the person that thinks, well, theology doesn't need philosophy. You go, oh, yeah. So how, what are you going to do with and start listing a bullet list that impact theology so directly, but whose fodder in in, in content is philosophical historically? One thing yeah. comes to mind. I remember having a debate. I was at uh, Georgia State University in downtown Atlanta, and I kept making this point about, well, the question of God's existence is a philosophical issue i kept bringing that up as self-serving as it is to say as a philosopher right you're not sometimes we have to say these things you know, i know i know it really services me because i i am one but nevertheless uh then i kept making that point well during the q a this gentleman said well who are you to say that these issues are philosophical and I was sort of taken aback because that's to me is like asking well who are you to say that the study of plants is botanical who are you to say that it's the <laughs> botanists that study plants and so it's like, well, it's not that we were looking around going, well, what can the botanist do? And they go, I don't know. What's ha- mm-hmm. what hadn't been taken yet? Well, nobody's doing <laughs> plants. OK, let's give plants to the botanist. That's not mm-hmm. the way it was dibbied up. It's the other way around we call people that study plants, botanists. So by parallel, it's not that, well, these issues are philosophical issues, like what is truth, or how do things stay the same and change, or what about causality? It's not that somehow we just arbitrarily label that philosophical. They That just is what philosophy is, is made of, of these kinds of questions. And who can deny, well, I know people that do deny, that many of these categories that by their very nature are philosophical, are uh, that ha- they have direct impact on things we're concerned about as, as uh, theologians and, and Christians. I mean, we could just go down a whole bullet list, as time allows, about what some of those are as we go along.
0: Yeah. So when you say that philosophy, I'm sorry, when you say theology needs philosophy, I mean, to the modern um, Protestant evangelical, that statement can seem jarring, right? It can seem yes. extreme, outrageous, right? Yes. And yet, absolutely. What, what we've already talked about here is it may seem that way now, but historically, there was like I said, there was an alliance, and there was a. A close relationship between philosophy in the project, philosophy and theology, especially in the project of theology proper. When we're talking about which we'll, we'll t- turn to here in a minute, of how philosophy informs theology proper in particular. Okay. One of the problems, Richard, that I that I encounter in uh, Protestant evangelicalism is uh, we tend to be ahistorical, right? <laughs> yeah. we, we tend to not have a connection with the Christian past. I mean, maybe we'll mm. be connected connected to the uh, Christian. past past that's distinctly American, right? You
1: know, mm-hmm. we can trace
0: our, our lineage through the, the great revivals, the first and second great awakening and Charles Finney and, and mm-hmm. these guys. But, but beyond that, by and large, the evangelical church in America just doesn't, is not in touch with her historical roots. And Absolutely. so for, for most Christians walking around today, they have no idea that there's this thing called classical theism, Right. Or there's, there's right. this thing called the historical perspective on philosophy and theology or philosophy being the handmaiden of theology. So I think that's a, that's an issue right there yes. that, you know, has to be addressed and has to be overcome. And, Absolutely. And so, right. So so when you say that theology needs philosophy, I think that, that sounds shocking, right, to a lot of people in the ev- ev- evangelical community. So let's unpack this if we can. In what Absolutely. way... In what way should philosophy inform our theology, especially when it comes to theology proper, when we're talking about the nature, the attributes of God?
1: Excellent. Yeah, let me run up to that. Um, you know, there's nothing like, and, and you, I'm sure you probably experienced this when you were doing your PhD in, in philosophy, um, there's nothing like telling somebody you're working on a degree in philosophy to, to get some really some very conspicuous uh, uh, reactions. <laughs> uh, you know, I would run into people and they would be puzzled by that. They, they really didn't know what philosophy was. They, they, they confused it with psychology because they both started with a P or whatever, right. you know. Yeah. Um, but then some would be a little suspicious, like, you know, I don't know. I mean, you got to be careful with that stuff. But some and I'm talking Christians. Some That's were right. just outright hostile. That, well, not only is philosophy not serving theology, it's actually the enemy itself. And I ran into all of those and still run into them both personally and and in meetings and stuff. And, and I remember uh, some back in 2013, I had the privilege of being involved in a three-way panel discussion. Actually, it started out as journal articles in our Christian Apologetics Journal at as, as Southern Evangelical Seminary. And by the way, this journal that I'm mentioning is actually on my webpage. I made it in PDF because it's out of print. People want to go to richardghow.com and follow the links to the to that to the little shameless plug there. Um, <laughs> uh, but it was a debate, uh, among other things, on the viability of things like philosophy. And I've discovered some additional objections that were brought up. And I'm still trying to deal with some of this. Anthony as a precursor to jumping into the specifics of the theology sure, proper. Sure. And one of the things that came up was uh, well um, it makes it makes philosophy it makes theology and in apologetics elitist. Me and this hmm. was Scott Oliphant from Westminster who said this. And what he meant by that was well if you think philosophy needs uh, theology needs philosophy that's the first if. And then second, someone is not disposed necessarily to do philosophy for whatever reason, not interested, they don't have the aptitude, they don't have the resource, whatever it is, then you've basically put it out of reach of that person. Because if they need the philosophy, they don't do the philosophy, they can't do the theology. And and I, I, I tried to answer that. I think Scott was totally underwhelmed by my response, <laughs> but I think... Because uh, this is an important subtlety there that'll that'll be important as we get into the weeds about theology proper here in a minute. I tried to counter that by saying, well, look, you know, if a parent tells their little girl to go out in the backyard and pick a flower, you know, go get mommy a flower. Now, as long as they're ambulatory and they're old enough to know what a flower is and that stuff, okay, the little girl's going to go out and pick a flower. I mean, She's not going to pick up the dog poop and put it in the garbage disposal. She's going to go get a flower, bring it to mommy. But you think about it. Are there things about that flower that might be beyond the capacity of the little girl? If you start wanting to know more about flowers and the plants they grow on, you might need to have to study botany. Now, that's not making it elitist. It's just to say, well, once you start getting a little deeper then of course you have to attenuate the study Uh and you could go deeper than the botany. You could do chemistry. If you wanted to study photosynthesis or you would have to do physics. If you wanted to study the molecules and, and elements that give rise to the chemistry, each level, as you go more and more in depth, it requires a certain attenuated kind of discipline. So by parallel, of course people can read their Bible and understand much of what's going on there, certainly the gospel and these kind of things. But if you're going to do an in-depth analysis of things like theology proper and the nature of God, particularly, yeah. then that that may call on some deeper tools in theology. And then as I'm going to try and we're going to try to illustrate also in, in philosophy to do those things. So it's not like if I walk outside, I see it's a beautiful, sunny day and I go, wow, what a nice, beautiful sunshine. I'm not, astro- I'm not an astronomer all of a sudden. I'm not doing astronomy, right? But if I'm going to do an in-depth analysis of the sun, that's astronomy. So there are lots of things that we can know as humans that, uh, that, that don't take any special discipline to know. But an in-depth analysis and in defense of certain aspects of our knowledge of reality might require astronomy or some other science or in our in our uh case for tonight philosophy so that was one objection that came is it makes it a it makes it elitist but more than getting closer to the topic at hand another criticism that came up during that debate or maybe it just came to my mind as we were having that conversation back in 2013 was it doesn't seem relevant i mean what 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 what, you know, to caricature uh, Tertullians, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? That These are these are synecdoches, right? Athens stands for philosophy. Jerusalem stands for theology. And so I used to use this illustration that I want to give you. And I used it for years. And uh, one of our uh, former staff members, he's a, really the visionary behind Ratio Christi. If you're familiar with any of your listeners, familiar, or your viewers, familiar with that ministry, named Simon Bray. So Simon, if you're watching this this podcast, then a shout out to you. Um, and Simon said, you know, uh, you really need to use this as an illustration than the one you're using. Uh, and 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 at first, I didn't understand what he was getting at. And here's what his problem was. And I and I decided I really need both. I was using an illustration of how bad it can be out there that the only antidote to some bad thinking about God and his nature and his attributes, the only antidote to that would be sound philosophical theology. The problem with the illustration, I think Simon was right, is it's so outrageous that it's, it's like hearing about some disease that you can't get. Uh, unless you go to the most remote part of the earth. Well, then nobody's going to worry about that. It's like, well, it really doesn't matter to me. I don't have to worry about that. And that illustration seems so outrageous. And the illustration was uh, used and I still used was the Dake Annotated Reference Bible, a uh, Finest Jennings Dake. And what Dake argues in his study Bible is that God's has all of these body parts that the Bible ascribes to him, the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro in the earth. So he has eyes. It says it right there. You know, his tongue, uh, his lips, his hair, his arms. And so Dake is arguing, yes, God has all these body parts. Now, he didn't think they were physical. They were like spirit body, whatever that means and such. And 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 when I use this in a presentation in my PowerPoint, and I ask the audience, and I have that quote from Dake, and I ask the audience, you know, what do you think is even worse about this quote Than the obvious, because I figure most people are not going to believe God literally has hands or feet or eyes or whatever. I said, but what else is troublesome? And you can't see the slide. I'm not showing it to you, but I'm just telling you. What else is troublesome about that slide? And i let people sort of marinate in that for a minute. And then what I do on the next slide is all of the text is gone, and it's just the scripture references that he gives. Every one of those things he lists is a direct quote of scripture. Genesis chapter 3 says that uh, Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. And I asked a friend of mine at church, I said, you believe God has legs? He said, well, no, I don't. Well, it says right here, he's walking in the garden. I mean, you you can't walk without legs. Snakes don't walk. How do you get away with not believing that God has legs? What what do you believe? He said, well, I believe God is spirit. I said, well, uh, what do you do then with the agenda? And he quoted John chapter 4. I said, so what do you do with the Genesis 3 passage? He said, well, I take that as a figure of speech. My question is, well, how do you know the John 4 passage isn't the figure of speech? The text doesn't tell you which one's the figure of speech and which one's the proper statement about God. Maybe he's only figuratively a spirit. He's literally walking in the garden. But you're taking it as, well, he's figuratively walking the garden, but he's literally a spirit, which I would agree with. But it's like, well, but the text doesn't tell you that. And we're sort of coasting on an inertia of views about God that are now starting to fade away. I actually do a presentation titled God Fading Away, where these things aren't as self-evident to people. I mean, you could give other examples. Uh, in, in 2 Samuel 7, God is talking about moving around in the tents, about moving around in the wilderness. When are you going to build me a house? And you go, how could you move around? I thought you were omnipresent. You know, how can you move around from place to place? It sounds like he's spatially located and stuff. So I take as a as a sort of uh license, that's not really the right word as a uh, as the insight on well, how do we begin to deal with these issues about knowing when the Bible does or doesn't speak uh, literally and f- versus figurative about God isaiah fifty five Isaiah says, "The trees of the field shall clap their hands. He's talking about this triumphant celebratory event in the eschaton, in the end times, right? The trees of the field will clap their hands. Now, the reason we know that that's a figure of speech, a metaphor, is because we already can know enough about the nature of a tree so that when the Bible ascribes hands to trees, it's only speaking figuratively. Right. But the Bible doesn't tell you that trees don't have hands. Right. right. Well, where did we learn that trees don't have hands? We learned that from experiencing actual trees in the real world. Right. So as you grow up, you see this tree, this willow, this oak, this pine tree or whatever. And your intellect is able to to abstract that nature of tree so much so that someone could come along and say, you know, I've got a tree in my backyard everybody knows what you mean. You didn't say anything particular about it except that it was in your backyard. You didn't say whether it was deciduous or evergreen or fruit bearing, flower bearing, whether it was young or old, sick or well. You just said virtually nothing about it, yet everybody knew what tree was because of our ability to know what trees are by experiencing particular trees. So you think, all right, There must be some way, I would suggest, that we could know enough about the nature of God so that when the Bible does ascribe lips or hair or or tongue or eyes or arms to God, that it's not speaking literally, but it's speaking analogically, if you will. We must be able to know enough. Problem is, though, it's not like, well, we saw that God, this God, this God, and we abstracted the form God and the nature God, and we know, well, therefore, gods don't. Because, in fact, actually, a lot of gods in mythology do have hands and, and you know and yeah. body parts. So that's not right. going to help yeah. us at all. Well, I think the key is what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, where he says the invisibles, the Greek word is actually. Invisibles. It's translated often in the English as the invisible attributes, the invisible things, if you will. The invisibles of God are clearly seen, being un- understood through the things that are made. So these these uh, uh, these invisibles that, that is basically a negation of the word see are clearly seen, which is the same word in the Greek. The unseen are clearly seen. How being understood by the things that are made, so that. We are without excuse. What are the things that are made? That's creation. So I tease students sometimes to go, what does it look like to go from what you can see, hear, taste, touch, or smell, to the God of classical theism? that's, That's timeless, spaceless, eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, immutable, impassable. What does that conversation look like? Two things I think are relevant at this point. One, I think in many respects, historically, You could count on the fact, as David did in the psalm, in Psalm 19, uh, the heavens declare the glory of God, or Psalm 97, the heavens declare his righteousness. Or, uh, you know, uh, uh, some, I mean, Acts uh, uh, 14, where it talks about God's providential superintendence Mm -hmm. of the affairs of man. A lot of things in creation, people experience those. They immediately know that this is God, or maybe immediately is not the right word. They can infer that there's a God. I mean, if you told somebody, hey, the scientists proved that the universe hasn't always existed, so it must have had a cause. I think a lot of normal people go, well, that sounds like God to me. Who else is going to be a universe maker? But as self-serving as it is for you and me and other philosophers to say this, uh, as more toxic philosophical voices have flowed into the conversation, especially within Protestantism, now you can have a Richard Dawkins, a consummate scientist, look square into the almost incredible uh, uh, design and complexity of biological systems and not connect the dots. Yeah. How is that even possible? Well, it didn't just happen overnight. There's something going on, and I think it's the deleterious influences of bad philosophy. So now you've mentioned the term, and I've used it uh, more than once probably, classical theism. Now there's a debate, even within conservative Protestants, about this classical theism What uh, over above what some of the ter- detractors of uh, the other side call uh theistic personalism. And it's a it's a battle over how legitimate are these traditional attributes of God uh and and how how viable are they to rational critique and are they true and then how do they square with exegesis uh, of scripture. Well we already know that last part is the tricky part because if you're not careful in your exegesis you're going to end up like a dake study bible. And by the way I That's never right, told yeah. you The other example that Simon said, this is the example you need to use, because this this actually illustrates how close it hits to home, and that is open theism. Mm -hmm. Now you're talking about people ostensibly evangelicals, uh, or at least in in a sort of an orbit of evangelicalism. And open theism is adamant about god not knowing future what are known as future contingent propositions so god cannot know what i'm going to freely choose for lunch tomorrow he can't know that because the open thea says it's not a thing to be known it's a future yeah. event that doesn't have any reality right now so god can't know it now he could make me eat whatever he wants me to eat for lunch in his in his power but the point is, he's not omniscient in the classical, traditional sense of the term, where he knows everything, past, present, and future. And so, people like um, like uh, Gregory Boyd, uh, for example, or John Sanders, uh, uh, Clark Pinnock, some of these writers, um, uh, uh, others that that I could name, William Hasker, name, yeah, William Hasker, exactly, who are who are defending the stuff in nineteen, I'm sorry, in two thousand three, and I, I was. I was at the ETS when this happened, but I wasn't in the business meeting. Uh, Norm Geiser and others, at least Norm, and I don't know who else was in on it, had had uh, brought up charges against three members of the society, Evangelical Theological Society, against open theism. Uh, and he tried mm-hmm. to argue that it violated this the uh, society's commitment to inerrancy. I wasn't sure exactly what that argument was, but nevertheless, that's that's what it was. And because the society didn't have anything about open theism explicitly, so you couldn't just say, hey, these guys are open theists, and the doctrinal statement says you can't be an open theist. It wasn't that easy. So it had to be uh, come to a vote. And you had to have a supermajority or whatever they call it, like two-thirds of majority, and they didn't get it. So none of the members were expelled from the from the society, which was a tacit endorsement that open theism is within the boundaries of evangelical theology. I think you could pick evangelicals not only like a Norm Geisler in the 20 and 21st century, but go back more and more in the past that they would just be outraged and just flummoxed to discover that evangelicals had had uh, warmed up to the idea that God doesn't yeah. know the future. Yeah. And for better or for worse, Anthony, these are these involve philosophical issues and philosophical tools to have the debate. It's not primarily exegetical. That that's my point about walking in the garden or the Dake Study Bible. It's not an exegetical. I'm not saying the exegesis doesn't have something to say because sure. One could easily say, well, you know, you can you can compare the second Samuel seven passage with later on in Samuel when Solomon builds that house. What does Solomon say? The heavens and the heavens of the heavens cannot contain you. How much right. less this house I build. But so we've got this what seemed like a conflict. He's moving around in a tent and he can't uh-huh. even fit in the heavens of the heavens. One of them is more literal, and the other is more figurative. That's the right. problem is the text doesn't tell you which one's which, I mm-hmm. argue. So you've got to appeal any more than the text told us whether the sun stood still, was phenomenological language, as we now believe it is, or was literal language, as Bellarmine and everybody thought that it was back in the in the 17th century.
0: Yeah, so I guess everybody has to bring some kind of a regulative hermeneutical principle to the task of doing theology, doing systematics, because it's just kind of an an inductive reality. When you look at the text of scripture, um, the Old Testament is loaded with anthropomorphisms, right? Descriptions of God in very humanoid type ways, Not, Mm. not exclusively, like you said, there's some very lofty theological statements in the Old Testament as well. But then the New Testament is primarily these lofty theological statements Instead of uh, these more anthropomorphic depictions of God. I mean, a great example of this is, um, you know, Exodus, Exodus 33. Uh, Moses says to, get to, to God, Show me your glory. And so what, we're, we're told in Exodus that God puts Moses in the cleft of the rock mm-hmm. and then he passes by Moses so Moses can just see his back, right? But then we get to the New Testament and Jesus tells us, for example, in the Gospel of John, um, I can't remember where, maybe John 14, Jesus just says, no one has ever seen God. Mm. So what do you, what do you do with that? You know, here, here, here in Exodus, if you, if you, if you interpret the passage in kind of a woodenly literal way, I mean, it seems as if Moses is seeing God, at least the back of Mm -hmm. God, but then Jesus tells us no one Mm -hmm. has ever seen God. So we have these statements in scripture that seem to be intention, And in order to, um, unpack this in, in, order, in order to um, you know, do theology and do systematics, we have to have some kind of a regulative principle that allows us to say, as you were just explaining, well, this is anthropomorphism. This is language of appearance. This right. is metaphorical. This is figurative. This is literal. Right When we yeah. read in the New Testament that God is spirit, mm-hmm. we are supposed to take that literally. And when, when we read in, in the book of Genesis that God is walking around in the garden, well, that's figurative. That's a metaphor right. or a theophany or what have you. Right. 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 But at the end of the exactly. day, we all have to bring some kind of a regulative principle to the task of hermeneutics and biblical interpretation in order to adjudicate as to... Absolutely. to which one of these passages are going to take precedence theologically? And that, and, 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 and how would you
1: does. say too, would you say, Anthony, that uh in a in a very significant way, that regulative principle or principles are not themselves something you get from scripture? Right? Absolutely because they are the tool Absolutely. that's sort of antecedent to how you understand the scripture, right? Does yes. that sound fair? Yes. And so Absolutely. Uh, what, what it reminds me of is a kind of an ancillary debate, but it's tethered to this debate, and that is how enthusiastically uh, Protestants defend Sola Scriptura, but then all of a sudden, or not all of a sudden, but then eventually Sola Scriptura is code for non-philosophy. In other that's words, right. you know, that's all man's, that's outside the Bible. And the next time I get an opportunity to ask somebody that is so committed to this sort of, I think, narrow and incorrect Sola Scriptura definition, say, well, do you do you use the grammatical historical method of biblical interpretation if they know enough about evangelical they're going to say yes biblical studies they're going to say oh absolutely i go where is that in the bible that's right. what does the bible teach you to use the grammatical historical method and even if it did teach you that you wouldn't be able to get that teaching out of the bible without already having your hermeneutical uh, principles in order to understand, Tom Howe makes a big deal out of this in a number of his works, including his in objectivity and biblical interpretation. It, you can't get your hermeneutics from the scriptures, that doesn't make no. sense. You'd have yeah. to understand it to get them, which means you had them before you had them or before it doesn't make any sense. And so, right. you know, I, I remember the, the, there's a joke that used to be told, you, you know, in my childhood, uh, and I guess it comes up every now and then, I was usually in church circles, where uh, teachers teaching the children a Sunday school lesson. And I'd uh, say, well, boys and girls, now I've got a riddle for you. Uh, what's gray and has a bushy tail and prances around and hides acorns or hides nuts in the wintertime? And the, one of the little guys in the, in the, in the Sunday school classes says, well it sounds like a squirrel, but I'm going to say Jesus. And, and, and <laughs> it's the always the right is, answer. in Sunday school, see? So he thinks every answer has to be Jesus. And on this very principle, when you, when you bring up the idea of, well, your hermeneutics, can't, you can't get them from the Bible. And you've been hammering that and talking to students, let's say. Watch, try this sometime if you haven't already done it, and say, so where do you think we should get our principles of hermeneutics? And they're going to say, well, philosophy? you go, no, no, it's not philosophy. The, the, they say it because you're in a philosophy right. class, you're doing philosophical theology, or whatever it is. You say, no, you get these things from the nature of reality itself. Yeah. Now, to be sure that reality is created by God and he's got a name, fine. But what you... What I try to help students come to terms with is that our first encounter, all of our knowledge begins with what we see, hear, taste, touch, or smell, and then is completed in our intellects. And that combination of my of my faculties of the empirical world coupled with the rational faculties I have as a human being together is what gives me knowledge and I can uh-huh. make all kinds of inferences about the nature of physical objects, but I can also reason f- from effect to cause about what the nature of the first cause, namely God, must be like. And that's that's what I think is is needs to be kind of rejuvenated in in some circle. And thankfully, by the way, it's happening a lot. You're probably as, if not more familiar than I am, there has been a resurgence of classical theism. Uh, in the past few years. I'd love to say it's all because of SES, because Geiser's been hammering this point since I knew him in the early 80s. And of course, he'd been doing it for many, many years before that. Um, But I I don't know that all of it had to do with Southern Evangelical Seminary. Maybe we had some part to play. But Rebecca, I just got back from a a lecture uh, by Carl Truman at the uh, Center for Classical Theology. Uh, and, And it just, I was heartened by how many people around were celebrating Classical theism. So
0: yeah. And you know it's catching on when secular academic philosophers are beginning to interact with some of these classical arguments. You know, they're beginning to interact with Aquinas. And so you know when when the secular philosophers, the academics, begin to have to respond to some of these uh arguments from natural theology, you know, okay, okay, it's starting to uh garner some attention. Yes. So even yeah. at the now, academic. And, and level and it's
1: disheartening when you see if you go back not too many decades how seldom that was even happening. I I teach a course at the seminary on contemporary atheism. And uh, uh, one of the textbooks we go through is, uh, is um, the Cambridge companion to atheism. So here are some of the top philosophical atheists in the Anglo American world. And I'm just startled, if not just floored about how little they interact with classical Christian thinking. I think maybe if they redid the book today, perhaps there would be some going, Hey, we, wait a minute. There's a, there's a tradition here that has basically gotten overlooked that you and I would argue, and it wasn't because of Protestant Catholic divide. It endured in Protestantism well into the uh-huh. Puritan era, into the 17th century, and in uh, all kinds of people, some who go back contemporary with Calvin. So you've got people right at the beginning of the Protestant Reformation who right. were thoroughgoing scholastics, not only in their methodology, but also in their philosophical and theological content.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, so we have this issue where just inductively, you know, scripture contains anthropomorphic descriptions of God and these lofty theological descriptions. We've got to mm-hmm. adjudicate between those. We need to bring some kind of a regulative principle. But we also have the situation where when you're doing systematics, right, when you're compiling together all of the verses that talk about this attribute of God <laughs> or that attribute of God, what you often find is that the data that you gather from scripture is underdetermined. Let me give you an example. So, we—I've uh, been taking a group in, in my church through William Lane Craig's Defenders course. It's just been tons of fun. But we went through, and William Lane—William Lane, uh, Lane Craig—is not a classical theist, but we right. went through his his um, theology proper section. And um, with so many of the attributes of God, um, Craig would gather together all of the relevant verses in Scripture, and he would make the um, he would make the observation that. Okay, so this is what the scripture says about, for example, divine eternity, but it's underdetermined from these verses whether divine eternity means temporality God exists outside of time, or whether it means that God is everlasting, that he exists mm. at all times, right? And so even Craig would have to say, you know, how do we, how do we decide? Well, we have to look to philosophy, right? Mm. We have to look beyond the text of scripture in these, in some of these areas, because when you do systematics, you discover that uh, when it comes to these attributes of God, like eternality, like immutability, for example, Mm. uh, the text of scripture is just underdetermined. And in in order to, to systematize what we have, we have to, again, we have to look to some regulative hermeneutical principle so,
1: yes yeah. yes you know it's funny uh uh bill craig actually identifies as a classical theist how he in does. the world he can sit oh he he in his uh, uh tag team he did with ryan mullins on capturing christianity i'm uh, sorry is that it uh mm-hmm. yeah i think mm-hmm. that's right uh, cameron cambridge Bertuzis. there's there's yes. several christianity podcasts that I, i'm starting to get familiar with and i'm, so I'm probably conflating the names Yeah, and so uh, they're picking on primarily simplicity. So they're both volleying back and forth of their criticisms of the doctrine of simplicity. And so, uh, so at some point, Craig goes, Well, I consider myself a classical theist, and I don't really, you know, I don't believe God is made of parts, which he doesn't tell the audience there, probably didn't have the opportunity. The reason why he doesn't believe God is made of parts is because he doesn't believe anything is made of of metaphysical parts because he's an anti-realist. But Mm -hmm. how he can sustain, I'm not here to pick on Bill Craig, he's not here to defend himself. Uh we thank I have God, had the God. opportunity to engage him in debate. Uh, uh he and uh, he and I with Brian Huffling and Stephen Davis debated simplicity at mm-hmm. the uh, Evangelical Theological Society with a joint meeting of the American Academy of Religion. It was a great, I mean the guy's a hero of mine, and he yeah. has been since I first read the Kalam cosmological Likewise. argument. Oh, uh, it's you know, and I think he's just probably one of the most brilliant uh Christian uh thinkers out there, and certainly but the best debater that's darkened the state sure. in anybody's yeah. memory. But uh, yeah. but I really take great exception to his uh, anti-realism, as he calls it. Some people might call it a nominalism, but I think in his mind that carries a a little baggage with it. Sometimes the label that he wouldn't necessarily sign on to. But be that as it may, uh, uh, yeah. So uh, just just as an aside, you and I I think would both go well. He's obviously not a classical theist, <laughs> but mm-hmm. but but if he wants to call himself that, fine. But in this debate. He's not, you know, in terms of how that's dibbied up. I think it was Brian Davis from Oxford who coined the theistic personalism, yeah, kind of kind of view. So, uh, and that yeah. i think is more what what craig means but you know most most labels are given to the group by their detractors you know?
0: right. So, right.
1: historically so it, it'll probably stick despite their protests uh yeah. theistic personalism and because the term theistic personalism comes from the idea that you think of what a person is in in the physical world of, of a human being the sure. attributes of personhood self-consciousness will intention memory and you you use that as a template to ascribe to God. Nobody doesn't do that, by the way. You've already told us how much the Bible talks in these anthropomorphic kind of categories. It, I, w- I would argue that it pretty much never doesn't use the categories of the finite created world uh, in this sense. It just... It just sometimes has to qualify those, to, you know, it's, you you say something like God is all knowing, you take knowledge and extend it infinitely, or he's all powerful, you take power and extend it infinitely. We do this sort of uh, metaphorically of God, or we we draw certain analogies between God. And then we use the actual doctrine of a philosophical analogy to try to explain these things. So. Uh, it's just a matter now of well, what what is actually true about these things. And and sure. you and I and others in this battle are trying to pull the rest of the Protestant community back to its own heritage as That's Protestant right. of this classical view of God, of um, of simplicity and omniscience, omnipotence and, and the other superlative attributes we cherish.
0: Yeah. And when it comes to classical theism, um, When we talk about a regulative principle, hermeneutical principle, I mean, for the classical theists, can you just help us understand what what would a principle like that look like for Mm -hmm. someone who's who's from that tradition?
1: lots of you you probably the same way. I have friends who aren't academics and there aren't they aren't uh, philosophers, but they're very interested in a lot of things in apologetics. And knowing that I'm a philosopher, they're they're not shy to bring up that aspect. Well, help me understand exactly what, you know, what does Aquinas versus somebody else say about this and 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 uh, and such. So, so we have, but what I found myself very often, Discovering over and over again, running into over and over again in those kind of conversations are other kinds of conversations, like a more formal kind of thing. I kept running into this uh, that a lot of the things that we uh, are adamant about in our conclusions arise out of our philosophical commitments. As as Thomas, yeah. and certainly at the seminary. In fact, when I was doing my dissertation at University of Arkansas, and I was doing it on Aquinas's second way of his five arguments for God's existence, the pithy little arguments at the beginning of his Summa Theologia. And I was defending his efficient causality argument. I was probably four-fifths or more the way through with that dissertation when it all of a sudden, maybe seemingly all of a sudden, looked to me like that all I had accomplished was... Well, given Aquinas' metaphysics, this is a pretty good argument for God's existence. Yeah. It's like, well, duh, you know. So That's in, right, so in yeah. other words, it made me go, well, wow, how do I defend that antecedent metaphysics, if I can use that term, those philosophical categories? How do I defend that? And, and I was reminded of that over, and in fact, in our debate that Brian Huffling and I had with Bill Craig and Stephen Davis, at one point during the debate, and I got to go back and listen to it and get the exact quote, but I do remember Stephen Davis saying, well, I agree with Richard, given Aquinas' philosophy, simplicity makes sense. Now, Bill Craig would adamantly deny that. In fact, he thinks his rejection of simplicity is the Thomistic view. He thinks Aquinas' metaphysics is what simplicity incoherent. But that's that's yeah. another debate. We can have that conversation when it, whenever you're ready. But anyway, so all of that over, kept running into it. I finally said, how do I lobby for a lot of these philosophical grounding principles, regulatory, I like that expression you're using, and others. So what I came up with is, is an experiment, and, I, and I've tried it now twice in my, I teach the classical philosophy course at the seminary, which is kind of philosophy light. So it's philosophy for the apologetic students, not for the philosophy students. <laughs> okay, so I sort of tease them like this is yeah. like philosophy life because you're gonna have the luxury of time because they got other things they got to mm-hmm. take that the philosophy students don't do. So um, I-, I came out with a thought experiment. I won't go into detail, but just gonna give you the the the, the junction, the the gist of it rather, uh, and see if this gets close to answering the question. So w- what are some of these regulatory? principles and and i did a, a just a thought experiment about uh aristotle out camping with his dog and i tell somebody i say, look if you, you you've got aristotle I'll maybe give you a few examples but you got somebody aristotle he's out camping with his dog and the fire and the you know the snow and the trees and stuff and i started showing just the normal human experiences of things around him if you just Hey, do you notice X, Y? Yeah, yeah, I noticed that. Just write it down. Give it a label, whatever you want to call it. After a while, you will reproduce pretty much all the basic elements of Aristotle's and Aquinas's metaphysics. For example, you just ask somebody, okay, you've got a black Labrador retriever here. Do you, do you think there's a difference between the dog and the black? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you could have a dog that isn't black. But I think most people, unless they're just really thoroughgoing Platonists, you're not going to have a black without something that's black. Black is like an attribute of a thing. You go, okay, well, yeah. that's, that's Aristotle's substance accident. Right Now, that's an unfortunate term for us today. We, mm-hmm. we might use the word attribute or characteristic or predicate or something like that. But that's his substance accident Property. distinction. Yeah. yeah. I said, but all right, you got your dog and he's sitting down. So, do you see a difference between the sitting and the dog? Yes. Same as the uh, color of the dog, except the sitting isn't like the color, is it? Well, not exactly. So, even though they're both to the dog in the same way, they're not even like each other. Sitting, The sitting of the dog is something, a state that it's in. The color of the dog is a certain quality that it has. Well, you just start making these observations, you'll reproduce Aristotle's ten categories. Yeah. The substance and the non-predicables, right? right. Uh, how about the, uh, the trees that you look at and you, you realize, well, it used to be a tiny little sapling. Now it's a 60-foot tall cottonwood. Is it the same tree? I think no one would say, well, of course it's the same tree. It's not like a tree goes out of existence and a brand new tree comes in. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't do that. I don't think people would. They would say, yes, the same tree. Well, what is it that's the same about it? And what is it that is the grounding of its changes since so much of it changes? Call it anything you want. You're basically pointing out what Aristotle identifies as form and matter distinction. And so what I do is I just go down because you can then begin to think of universal versus particular. This Labrador, this German shepherd, this Chihuahua, but your intellect is able to understand something, a common nature between all of those. What is the what is that nature? And you know, is it real in any sense? If you say, uh, yeah, it's so there's something going on here, you're probably gonna think along the lines of. Plato or a lot of the Huns of Aristotle in That's that right. regard. And you just go down. And I, and I I try to do that. I don't know how successful it is to get the students to see that a lot of this Aristotelian Thomistic tradition, at least at its initial stages, uh, the fundamentals of its metaphysics, are just... Normal human reflections, yeah. critical, rational assessments of these important questions. What is a dog? What is the color of the dog? What is the sitting of the dog? What is the nature dog? Uh, what causes it what causes it to go from a puppy? Now you've got causality. What, what you know, how does it stay the same? You got form and matter and all these things. and I reproduce the last one of the list. It, it, which is one Aristotle doesn't have, is the essence existence distinction, right. the fact that it exists. Aristotle doesn't really have a a, a a notion of existence under which he brings all of these existential questions to bear. He obviously knew the difference between a dog that exists and one that didn't. But I'm saying he right. doesn't really seem to be part of his philosophy. And so you, you go, all right. And so what I tell students is I say, look, you give me this list. I think it's like eight or nine. You give me this list. You can demonstrate the existence and attributes of the God of classical theism just yeah. with these categories here. Uh, yeah. And I, I do—I say those things to sort of just intrigue them to go, "Okay, I got to hear what this sounds like. What does that sound like?" Yeah, uh, and that's then—that's and what classical theism tries to argue. It's like, well, no, we're—we're we're not just you know, asserting simplicity because it's a fun philosophical curiosity we like to volley around in debate. Are none of these attributes of God are that way. They're all things that grow out of a thoroughgoing philosophical and sometimes exegetical, as it as we can adjudicate the, you know, figurative from the literal uh, uh, assessment of the data that's before us. And that's that's why it's called classical theism because that's what it's been even before yeah. the New Testament, even back yeah. to Abraham.
0: Yeah. So. so where do you get these principles? How do you adjudicate? It's what you're saying is it's just a rational reflection on nature, right? A Absolutely. rational reflection on the created world. This is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1 and the way that some of the patristics talked about it and some of the church fathers was the idea that there's two books of God's revelation, right? There's right. what everybody what everybody associates with revelation immediately, which is scripture, But also for the classical theists and the church fathers and patristics, there was another source of God's revelation, and that was the created order. Absolutely. So that we can know know things about God, and this is what you're talking about. We can gain this philosophical insight just by reflecting on that created order, which has been authored by God. God both authored the created order, and he authored our rational equipment in order to understand it. And so we are reading when we're when we're doing philosophy, at least as it was done classically, we are simply trying to understand the second book of God's revelation, right? And and there are times when it's completely appropriate to interpret written revelation scripture using this other book that God has provided us with, and that's kind of how we can adjudicate Absolutely. and understand. Yeah. Absolutely. So, and one of the things mm-hmm. we reflect on when, when we when we look at the book of nature and we start to think deeply about. Uh, the nature of reality, and we start to do natural theology, and we start to look at all these uh, evidence for the existence of God and all of these mm-hmm. arguments from natural theology, what we realize is that uh, whatever God is, he has to be the ultimate reality, right? In the order of being, right. as, as Dr. Edward Fazer says. And he has to be the mm-hmm. ultimate explanation in the order of the discovery of things he has to be the ultimate explanation of things in the order of discovery and so that becomes a regulative principle whatever we say about god he at least has to be that right he at least has to be the ultimate reality that provides uh the explanation for the existence of everything else and so in that and that is simply drawn from a reflection on the book of nature using 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 the rational equipment that God has given us, reflecting on the creation that he has made.
1: You know, another so, thing that's important about this 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 idea of nature as a book of nature is, unlike the book of Scripture, the book of nature, if you will, is uh, accessible to everybody. Right. You know, in, in principle. I mean, nobody's not in the theater of God's creation, even if they don't believe there is a God, he's still in, he's still a member of that, which is not true of scripture, right? We're, we're endeavoring to try to make the written word of God available to people in the world, but we don't have to endeavor to make creation available because it's never not there. And Mm -hmm. so that's why it serves as the foundation. I would argue in fact, another talk that I do, I'm lobbying for coming back on your 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 podcast someday. Absolutely, <laughs> you know, throwing out these <laughs> little teasers there. Uh, but another talk I do is, what about those who've never heard the gospel? Because I think yeah. there's a robust answer to that that has everything to do with this concept of the book of nature. Uh, yeah. to be sure it's to call it a book of nature is metaphorical in the sense that it's yes. not written they're not sentences written right it's a it's a reality that we have a direct encounter with that god has created mm-hmm. from which we can reason from effect to cause to what the first cause must be like as you were as you were saying earlier
0: yeah and that's why paul says it's because of this revelation that paul says this revelation of god in nature that he says in romans chapter 1 that because of this we are without excuse absolutely right? And and, and what can be known about God in nature, Paul says, is evident to us. And and how is yes. it evident? It's evident in the things that are made. In the things that are made, so we right. can know, we can know the cause by a, a rational reflection on the effect. And of course, the effect is is the created order. So that's where we get our regulative thought, principle. By the way, from.
1: This is what's important about the. I keep interrupting you, but this is no, what's important about. Here's another debate that goes on within conservative Protestant. Uh, maybe a smaller one, uh, but this is why it's important about apologetic methodology. The presuppositionalism is, yeah. in effect, amputating half, if you will, of God's revelation of himself. They've more, more or less evacuated it of any of its uh, effect because of their erroneous understandings of... Uh, man's understanding and the noetic effects of sin and stuff. They departed from their own reformed heritage in that regard, too. This is why these things matter, isn't it? Because the, these aren't just academic footballs we love yeah. to toss around on an academic field somewhere. They really impact evangelism and discipleship and Christian growth in terms. I love you know books that like a, a, a J.I. Packer's Knowing God and how how robust it is in terms of the effects the uh uh, uh, just reflecting on the attributes of god has for the christian experience Mm -hmm. and the christian walk but these attributes are under attack and they're eroding or they're fading away as yeah as uh, as i so someone
0: asked me you know why do i think that that the open theist um understanding of the nature of god is wrong i mean you can have this you can lock horns in 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 your exposition of scripture that's fine but ultimately for me, it's because I'm reading the book of nature. I'm, I'm doing natural theology, and I realize yes. that whatever God is, he, he has to be the ultimate reality. He has to be the ultimate explanation. But that mm-hmm. implies that implies some things that must be true about God. If God is to be this, then he must be pure actuality, whatever that means. He must be simple. He must be immutable. He must be impassable, atemporal. He must be exhaustively omniscient. Right, and he right. must be the primary cause. So you can't be these things if you're the God of Open Theism.
1: That's exactly right. And yeah. I, I really think that these attributes, these these ones you've listed and others we could list, uh, to me they're like they're like uh, buoys on a boat uh, that are all tethered together. And you throw one yeah. overboard, thinking, "Well, you know, simplicity. What a quirky notion." <laughs> But then you don't realize, wait a minute, some of this tug in some of the others and they're flying overboard. So now omniscience is gone with with that. Well, you know, Clark Pinnock, in the last book that he wrote, titled provocatively, The Most Moved Mover, which was a slam against Aristotle's unmoved mover. uh, He was flirting with the idea that God might have a corporeal body, a physical Mm. body. Now, I don't necessarily want to indict all open theists, but Clark... Pinnock saw that potential as a it just basically carrying out the logic of the open theism that he had bought in. Now, if the open sure. theists want to say, oh, no, no, that doesn't follow at all. He's going to have to appeal to some regulative principle to stave that off. That's and he right. criticizes us, Boyd certainly criticizes us for this it, this illicit intrusion of Hellenism, which is Greek philosophy. Mm-hmm. Well mm-hmm. all he's done is just replaced it with either a haphazard, metaphysics or some other structural metaphysics that's just as intrusive as my hellenism was yeah. there's no, it's, it's no less of that's an right. intrusion if you're going to characterize it that way so yeah, yeah these things are connected and and we see this that's what i argue in my in my presentation that these things are fading away we've gotten to uh where fewer and fewer of these attributes are being considered among uh, uh, conservative evangelicals, certainly immutability and passability are being flirted with. Now it's impacting the Trinity because now they're having trouble reconciling the Trinity with some of their personalism. And so Mm -hmm. now the Trinity, social Trinity where it, the three members individually are not God collectively. They're God like a committee, but Mm -hmm. the committee is not a thing except the committee is just what you call the three of them together. Right? right, the Trinity's just—you know—you just go, "Wow, this is not accident that these kind of things happen, and they've been happening to greater or lesser extent in various periods in church history." It's just that now it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's acute in Seems our minds. Seems like it's accelerating. It's so easy for these yeah. ideas to get exchanged with the internet yeah. and stuff.
0: Yeah, back to what you're saying about the imposition of, of Greek Hellenistic philosophy. I mean, again, you know, my principle is I look, I I reflect on God's book of nature. I do natural th- theology. I say whatever God whatever God is, he has to be ultimate reality. You know, if God's not ultimate reality, we, we need to be looking for the ultimate reality. We need to look, We right. need to look behind God, right? We need we need exactly. our search needs to continue, right? We because ha- right. somewhere there has to be an ultimate reality and an ultimate explanation. That's what natural. That's what natural theology and philosophy teaches us. And so that's my regulative mm-hmm. principle. But then, but then, you know, although some open theists want to, want to talk as if their regulative principle is simply the text of scripture, when you really begin to read these guys, you realize that's not the case. Like no. William Hasker, who is probably the most uh, philosophically astute among the open theists, at least in my opinion, he just mm-hmm. comes out, I was listening, I can't remember what podcast this was, but I was listening to him explain his motivations for open theism. And he just came out and he just admitted look i'm committed to the idea that we have libertarian free will whatever that means right i'm committed to this certain philosophical conception of what free will is and so my conception of god has to work with what i'm already pre-committed to Hmm. as a conception for human freedom so he he builds Hmm. his his regulative principle becomes preserving this libertarian idea of of human free will. And so everybody's doing it, right? Everybody's right. engaged in the task of hermeneutics and, and systematics and theology proper. And we all have to appeal mm-hmm. to principles that go outside of the text of scripture Absolutely. itself. So, Absolutely. If you have some time, I would like to throw some common objections your way. Sure. And just maybe yes. have you briefly... Brief you, uh, briefly respond to these. Um, does that right. sound good? Yes, please. So uh, just a few uh, objections that you hear commonly. Um, the first one is just an, a straightforward biblical objection, Richard. What do we do with Colossians 2.8? In Colossians 2.8, okay. the apostle Paul says, I'm quoting here, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Right. End quote. Isn't Paul like explicitly speaking against the use of philosophy here?
1: Yeah. In fact, this uh, Colossians 2, eight is probably one of the two most common verses I hear come up in the discussion from detractors. A couple of things to say about it. First of all, uh, one could ask, well, when Paul talks about uh, being deceived by philosophy, uh, is does he mean philosophy the way we use that term today? Is he talking about Plato and Aristotle or whomever? Now, let's just that he is, for the sake of argument, to make it as hard on us as, as we can. Uh, uh, at least in a negative sense, there, there, there is a case for entertaining and knowing philosophy in, in this respect. Norm Geisler says you can't be aware of philosophy unless you be aware. Of philosophy. Yeah. Uh, C.S. Lewis said, good philosophy must exist if for no other reason than that bad philosophy needs to be answered, which is a great line. Thomas Aquinas said it this way. He said, because at times the teacher of sacred scripture must oppose the philosophers, he must at times make use of philosophy. So even in this negative sense to just sort of fend off the 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 objections that come out of that theater, we have to be aware enough of how to answer these these philosophers. Now someone may say, okay, well that's still not doing do philosophy the way you guys are advocating and stuff. So we press on from that to go, okay, so what wh- what do we do with the Colossians 2.8? I, I love to ask audiences because I don't know that I've ever had anybody that had the courage to, that admitted that they knew, they may know, but they're too shy to raise their hand. I ask audiences, what is the context of Colossians 2.8? Mm-hmm. Um, because what you discover is, and I think another way to translate that passage, and I in a presentation I give the footnotes of, here's the uh, the authorities that would suggest that this is an easy way to take that passage, is beware of the philosophy mm-hmm. which is empty deceit, that he had a particular philosophy in mind. And if you read the context, what he goes on to warn the Colossians about was them being scandalized by this insidious form of legalism arising out of some form of Gnosticism. Yeah. It's not touch not, handle not. Paul yeah. says that it has the appearance of of religion but is of no use in curtailing the indulgences of the flesh and we know from the nicolaitans later on that revelation talks about that gnosticism had two different deleterious influence influences in the world it said well the physical world is evil so you should abstain from it that's what was plaguing the colossian don't get married don't have sex with your wife don't eat this don't touch that but another one was the physical world is so meaningless, it doesn't matter what you do with it. So there they just indulge sexual immorality and everything. And that was kind of what the Nicolaitans were doing that were plaguing some of the churches in the beginning of, of Revelation. So that's the philosophy that Paul is warning uh, people about there in Colossians. Now that doesn't make my case that therefore philosophy is okay. Even if I can do an end run around uh, Colossians chapter two, uh, because uh, and, and by the way, I'm reminded of people like John MacArthur. He's he did a sermon back in the uh, middle '70s. You can get on his website. Uh, and then he revisited in 2000, I think, 13, uh, both a written and as well as a spoken uh, philosophy or Christ. He's one of yeah. these detractors that thinks that it has has nothing to do. So I think the Colossians 2.8 passage doesn't at all impact the debate that people want to have about the viability or lack thereof of philosophy. And by the way, he's not even thinking again, as I said, he's not even think about philosophy like Plato, Aristotle, like we use that, that term mm-hmm. today. By the way, the other verse, and I don't want to preempt the next objection no. to bring up but another verse that that really on the heels of that one always gets brought up in my hearing is 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 out of isaiah 55 as well i made an earlier reference to the trees clapping their hands but earlier uh where it says um for my thoughts are not your thoughts neither are my ways your ways or so as as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts and so the idea is okay well you guys are doing all this heady philosophy and stuff and that's antithetical to the way God is about stuff because his thoughts are not our thoughts. So the best we can do is not even going to get closed, blah, 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 blah. And on that same one, you know, you ask the, 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 the pertinent question, well, what does it say in context? Yeah. And you read the, the two verses before, and it sounds entirely different because the two verses before, he's indicting the thoughts of the unrighteous and the ways of the wicked. Yeah my thoughts are not your thoughts. So he's not telling the reader, my thoughts are not your thoughts, dear reader. He's telling Mm -hmm. the reader that his thoughts are not the thoughts of the wicked and his ways are not the ways of the unrighteous. That's what he's telling, or maybe I got him backwards, but that's what he's telling. So that verse, again, doesn't have anything to do with a role of rigorous philosophical thinking as it bears on on these. So I, I think you won't find scripture indicting these things in toto. In fact, very often to make the argument against you would have to use the very methods and tools of philosophy to make that argument. That's right. It's ironic. It's almost yeah. self-refuting in a way. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, okay. How about a historical objection here? And we've kind of already addressed this a little bit, but maybe we can uh, uh, just kind of give a, a concise answer. So, what do you say to the the common complaint that historical classical theology was over overly infiltrated and beholden um, to pagan greek philosophy
1: yes yeah so uh, yeah this happens a lot i mean this is another objection that bill craig raises he he thinks that uh-huh. the doctrine of simplicity is predicated more on pagan thought than and i go well, I, i'm not so sure the question is whether it's pagan or not that that would be like indicting the uh the pythagorean theorem because pythagoras was a pagan it's like well yeah. but the pythagorean theorems can still be true it's an it's really an ad hominem fallacy uh, because what matters is whether these things are true or not, not whether they're pagan or not. Now, to be sure, there doesn't seem to be much in, in indication that the Jews had much interaction with the Greeks, even though Thales was roughly a contemporary of Habakkuk, let's say, in the in the Old Testament. Uh, but look, uh, maybe I'm going out on a limb as suggesting that. So I'll just throw this as a, out as a consideration. The scriptures say, in the fullness of time, he sent forth his son. Do we think it's just a happy coincidence that before the New Testament era begins, Alexander the Great spreads the Greek language all over the Mediterranean, yeah. world, from Great Britain to Mongolia, So that by the time the missionaries of the New Testament, like Paul, are out preaching the gospel, the language of commerce was Greek. Now, it wasn't exactly like Alexander's, but nevertheless, just like today, English, we were talking before we started the recording of international travel. And everywhere I've been, most international travels, I'm very often at the tourist end of things, right, in Italy or whatever, nobody doesn't speak English at these shops that you go buy your kitschy little souvenirs. Yeah. Nobody doesn't speak English. Nobody didn't understand or speak Greek for the most part, because that was the language of commerce. Is it just, well, it's a stroke of good luck that Greek happened yeah. to be saturating the entire Mediterranean world when it was time to go, You therefore, into all the world and preach the gospel? That's one thing. Well, if that's certainly true about the language, might it be true about some of the tools of philosophy? that began to to nest themselves in thinking. Now, the Christians come and they run head on into some of the pagan thinking that was antithetical. The pagans did had no concept of creation ex nihilo, mm-hmm. for, for example. They had no concept of humility. I don't think that is even one of Aristotle's virtue, which, by the way, I no. think this is why it's the two preaching the gospel is foolishness to the Greeks, because it's the stupidest thing in the world that a king is going to, submit him and humble himself before his own servants. But that's what we were preaching about Jesus as the king of the universe, submitting himself. And that Greece just thought that was just nuts or whatever. But despite those obvious things that the Christians rebelled against, like like the, the universe has always existed or the soul doesn't survive the death of the body, there were other things that were tools, I would argue, that lent themselves very easily to Christian thinking, like a lot of Aristotle's thinking about ethics. Yeah, and the Nickel McKeon yeah. ethics, That's for a really example, good point, the virtue theory. so yeah. I think I think just the opposite that 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 in the fullness of time, the language and the intellectual milieu was being laid down mm-hmm. carefully so that the the missionary efforts of the church just had this like launching pad to just yeah. shoot out and build not only conceptually, as Paul does on Mars Hill, Uh, But also in terms of spoken language, they had this common ground that they could engage a lot of people. And then, you know, besides all of that, as I said at the beginning, it's a matter of whether it's a good idea that it's that you can defend it as plausible or not, irrespective of whether it's quote unquote pagan, because I still think the Pythagorean theorem is true. And I'm not going to let anybody disabuse me of that simply by pointing out how pagan Pythagoras was.
0: Yeah, and that's a great point that you make because, mm-hmm. you know, very often um, we point to maybe some of the material or political antecedents that were divinely in place that allowed Christianity to spread and propagate and flourish. Right? We, we talk about the Pax Romana, the Roman Peace. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the rise of Augustus and and the Roman Peace. We talk about the Roman roads, right, and and the system of communication. Absolutely. That, uh, they set up. But yeah, you're right. I mean, why shouldn't we think also that there were some intellectual antecedents that were in place as well that allowed Christianity to, to be propagated and spread and thrive right. as it did? Yeah. That, that's a really good point.
1: And, then, you know, as you, said, as you said earlier, we pointed out earlier uh, for, for whatever it's worth anybody, the church fathers found this stuff uh, readily. Accessible and useful in their polemics. Irenaeus did that. Clement of, uh, I I just got through checking out a book, um, uh, perusing it. Clement of Alexandria's use of Aristotle in refuting Gnosticism. How's that for an attenuated (laughs) study? Clement of Alexandria. I mean, there's a few quotes I had from him where he sounded obviously Aristotelian to me in his categories, but it was even more than that. Now, again, that doesn't make it right, but it does deflect. Do you realize the very first generation of Christians were already seeing how valuable these tools and data points, not just tools, but categories and data points, of making the Christian case against the pagan philosophy, yeah. yeah, and then well, you and then you can look at somebody.
0: Yeah, and then you can look at you know um, giants of the faith, like Augustine, for example. Arguably, Augustine is he's got to be within the top three most influential historical Christians who've ever lived. And when you look at Augustine, when you read the Confessions, um, Greek philosophy was integral for helping him become a Christian. It peeled him away from Manichaeism when he discovered Plotinus. <laughs> And, Neo- and Neoplatonism, and it kind of prepared the soil for him to receive the message of Christianity. Ah, absolutely,
1: it did. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: So you see you see yeah. lots of examples like this, historically speaking, where Greek philosophy, because it's true, not because it's Greek, because a lot of right. it just ha- ha- has it's to true. be true. Yeah. And, and of course, all truth is God's truth. So of course, it's going to be um, yeah. beneficial for the gospel you know this this, uh, this all truth is
1: god's truth um this this kind of saying that we we use uh, i've got a great quote from calvin that i I can't quote it exactly but i bring it up deliberately because well okay this is calvin so you know john MacArthur, you might want to you know read a little bit yeah. of the Institutes. but he basically said look if if these thinkers said things that are ought that are true, we ought not, not only to avoid it, but we ought to embrace it because right. it belongs to us anyway. That's <laughs> because right. Because all he's basically saying, all truth is God's truth and stuff. In fact, he goes on to, to describe the, the thinking of these, these, uh, what I forget the term, the, these, uh, the pagan, he doesn't use the word pagan, but basically he's talking about the unchristian thinkers of the of antiquity. He, he describes them as gifts that God has given to us, that we ought to avail ourselves to their yeah. thinking. Uh, you know, and this is John Calvin, uh, and I well, say that, August- that tone of voice, <laughs> thinking because many of the detractors today, like a John MacArthur or, D- or James White, are these loud voices, and you go, you're you're throwing away even your own Reformed heritage when you That's do right. it, when you say the things that you're and- saying.
0: Yeah, and, and typically Reformed people go to John Calvin and then they jump to Augustine and they skip the, the Middle Ages period <laughs> in there. But, but even Augustine, if I'm not mistaken, this is going to be on the Internet, so I hope I'm not wrong. But I think it was Augustine who coined the phrase, plunder the Egyptians, right? Because he took... He took that uh, passage in scripture where the Israelites, before they left Egypt, they plundered the Egyptians mm-hmm. because the Egyptians gave them jewelry and cookware and everything, and they took it with them into the wilderness. Yes. And so Augustine looks at this and he interprets allegorically, allegorically, and he says, just like the Israelites plundered the, the physical material things from, from the uh, Egyptians, we should be, as Christians, we should be plundering truth Wherever it's found.
1: Uh, that's right. right. Yeah, Whatever no, even, people group. I think even, uh, sorry, I'm talking on top of you. I think no, even you see this sentiment in Philo. who wasn't a Christian, but as a Jew. Yeah. In fact, he he's one of the earliest that I know of that used the handmade or handmaiden metaphor. Kind of for a different reason that I think later scholastics used the same metaphor. Or not, not for a different reason, but from a different source. But they end up, because he goes it from Sarah and Hagar and abraham but later on it's an imagery from the royal court of the queen and the handmaid but be that as it may but he he has a similar sentiment about being able yeah. to call from the philosophers these truths that serve our religion in his case the the judaism or his version thereof uh to make a to make a similar point
0: yeah great all right well let's um this is a big one so so maybe you can just you can just begin to, I don't know, make some inroads into answering this question, but don't feel like you have to give an exhaustive answer because maybe we need to come back and have a discussion just about this question. But there's a theological objection that's often levied here, Mm -hmm. and that's this. Isn't the God of the philosophers different than the God that we encounter in the Bible? It's often claimed that the God that's portrayed by classical theism, um, and philosophical theology is too transcendent, immovable, static. Yeah, this God can't be the same God we see portrayed in Scripture, who's personal, involved, responsive, and so forth. And yeah, again, that, no, that's a big one. That's a big I mean, one. I know it is but... a big
1: one. Let me let me just a few thoughts about it. I remember um, one time, Doctor Bridges, our academic dean and philosophy professor at the seminary was at uh, Evangelical Theological slash Evangelical Philosophical Society. He was in the hallway talking to another philosopher. And later that day, I asked him, I said, so what what were you and -and so-and-so talking about? And he brought this objection up. He said, you know, when you talk about God being uh, uh, the the transcendent and that he's, you, you know, he's pure actuality or whatever, you know, it seems like he's so remote. And Dr. Bridges reminded him in the in this classical tradition especially in in aquinas that in aquinas in his metaphysics uh, god is not only the creator he not only caused the universe to come into existence but he is causing its existence at every instant of its existence he's like a violinist that's playing a a concerto the music only is music as the violinist is causing it to be music if he stops causing it's just gone And and so in Aquinas' thinking, God is sustaining. And so Dr. Bridges tried to get this other philosopher to see, you couldn't be any more intimate, if you will, with the creation than God is by sustaining its very being. That's That's, right. I mean, you can't get closer to to something than that. We don't even get that close to something else, uh, except sort of metaphorically speaking. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I can understand the the concern, especially when it starts getting into deep philosophy, and it sounds less and less like uh, Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. But just remind your, we, just to remind your viewers, uh, our hearers that that uh, we've already touched on the fact that well yeah, but realize that same Bible that we want to have the God of the Bible is the one that has him. Located in space, that he has body parts, that he seemingly doesn't know things. Now I know, he said to Abram, right when he was offering Isaac as a Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. And and I would like to think they don't want that. Although the open theists are saying, yeah, yeah, we do want that. But nevertheless, so far people haven't gone that far that they would say, well, yeah, I don't believe God has these body parts. Well, that's what your Bible says. So you've got to have, like you say, some regulative principle for all of a sudden not take that as biblical because that's what the Bible says. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro on the earth. My eyes has a retina and an optic nerve and, you know, rods and cones. So if he's got eyes, what are you going to do with that? something's yeah. got to give somewhere. Somebody's going to have to have, like you said, the regulative principle. It's going to be something, no matter what. Yeah. You're either going to end up with these heresies like Dake or these these questionable theological conclusions like Boyd and the open theist, or uh, hopefully some form of robust classical theism.
0: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Like I said, this is a topic that we could riff on for a long time, but you know, it's interesting because I've personally... I, I don't know what you think about this, but I've personally never f- encountered... A philosophical theology, a philosophical theology, a view of God that is more transcendent than the one that we're given in the thinking of Thomas Aquinas. I don't know if you would agree with that, yeah. but no, I, I think uh, Aquinas gives us the greatest possible conception of God in terms of transcendence uh, that I think is possible mm. using, using our, our human reason. But he also gives uh, a he also has this God not only is radically tr- transcendent but in the think of aquinas god is also radically imminent as well in fact for aquinas it's it's god's transcendence that allows for his radical mm. imminence that makes it possible because it's just as you said there's nothing aquinas goes on to explain that there's nothing so intimate about a person than their very existence in their right. very being aquinas explains this is this is the most intimate thing about you and god is right there at the most intimate place in your very being making you to be he's right there that's where he's mm-hmm. active in your oh. life it doesn't get closer than that Aquinas explains. But the, the reason why God can be that close is because he's that transcendent. Absolutely. He's not just another being. He's not just another being in the world that just interacts with other beings of the world, like you and I could interact. Like right? He's do. something other, right? Other he differs differently. Yeah. I remember, and it's um, his,
1: sorry. I, 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 I was just, just going to say it's
0: his transcendence that allows for this radical imminence.
1: I, I remember right where I was when I when when I was still living in Mississippi and had been studying philosophy, and uh, and uh, I, I remember I used to walk at night till my knees had started objecting, but I would walk at night for exercise, and that's where I had my my best prayer times is walking in my neighborhoods late at night. And I remember Anthony right where I was and what street I was on when 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 it hit me when this hit me, and that was. Uh, when I was a younger Christian in the discipleship and the youth leaders would do things like, hey, you need to learn how to be a good steward of, and you fill in the blank. You need to be a good steward of your money or your time or your talents. I remember right where I was when it hit me, what kind of steward am I being of my very existence? Yeah, I mean, just it just, it was a weird feeling. It was like, right at this moment, I'm being sustained in existence. What am I doing with that?
0: How faithful
1: am I, am, am I with that? And, 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 uh, uh, Geiser once was talking about God's pure actuality and all this metaphysics of Aquinas. He said, what do you do when you're in the presence of pure actuality? He said, you take off your shoes because the That's ground right. on which you stand is holy ground. And all of a sudden, what seemed to be this chasm in people's mind between uh, uh, an intimate personal relationship with God and this cold ivory tower academic philosophy, all of a sudden they just collapsed into one another. That's right. You're in the middle of yeah. doing metaphysics and all of a sudden you're on your knees worshiping. the, That's the the God of creation, that you were led to that by studying technical metaphysics. That's right.
0: Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Well, this is great stuff, Richard. You've been very gracious with your time here. Before we say goodbye, would you mind giving an update maybe on what you're currently working on or where people can go to find out more about your work. Yes.
1: So you, you can go to richardghow.com. OK, so I'm not a web developer. And uh, so it's a kind of a cheesy kind of static looking website. But I think all the links work. Richardghow.com. And you can follow the tabs at the tops for resources and my speaking schedule and such. Uh, so uh, happy for you to do that. I start a class uh, in January at the seminary. You can get information off of there at ses.edu as well. Uh, start a class in January. It's a one-week module class on Introduction to Apologetics. And then I'm very excited about this, too, because I don't do often weekly classes. I usually do the one-week modules. I'm doing a class that starts January 25th on Thursday nights on Contemporary Atheism. So I'm excited mm. about that. Um, we just, Rebecca and I just got through a whole spade of travel around the world, uh, speaking at various conferences from Alaska to, to South Africa, to Alaska, to Washington, D.C., to Hawaii, to Arizona, to San Antonio, just having more fun. So a little hiatus now, thankfully. I'll, I'll be at the DEFEND conference at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary the first week of January, starting January 2nd. So, uh, love to meet anybody. Uh, come, if you see this and you, 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 you discovered who I was and you see me at one of these things, come up, introduce yourself. Love to meet you and talk with you.
0: All right, well, Richard, thanks so much for joining me today on Think for Christ. It's been tons of fun.
1: Thanks, Anthony. I appreciate it, brother.